welcome to I'm a writer, but don't fucking email us. <laughs> I'm Alex Higley. And I'm Lindsay Hunter. And I'm, I'm a, a writer, writer but... <laughs> Welcome to I'm a Writer But. Today we have Dana Norris. Dana is the founder of the Story Club franchise. She produces and hosts Story Club Cleveland and teaches at Literary Cleveland and Story Studio Chicago. She has been published in McSweeney's Internet Tendency, The Rumpus, Tampa Review, and her stories have been featured on WBEZ, WCPN, and Vocalo.org, or 89.5 FM, among many others. And if you want to see her upcoming performance schedule, go to her website, DanaNorris.net. She also has an MFA in creative nonfiction from Northwestern University and an MA in religious studies from the University of Chicago. You are fancy, Dana. (laughs) I have degrees and um, they are fun pieces of paper that are in. I'm sure they brought you to where you are. Degrees that we could talk about, but that's fine. Um, and we are so excited to hear you read. Yes. Okay, yes, this is be more you. recent one that is pandemic-ish, but uh, works for me. Okay. My six-year-old hates me. I'm in the kitchen making pierogies and sauteed mushrooms for dinner while he's in the basement yelling that I broke my promise to build Legos with him. I did tell him that I would build Legos with him, but only after he cleaned up the playroom. And he took forever doing that. And then he insisted on vacuuming the whole playroom by himself with a hand vac, identifying and sucking up each crumb one by one. And then I looked up and it was 7.15 p.m. and I hadn't even started dinner yet. So I said, sorry, buddy, we'll build Legos tomorrow. I placed frozen pierogies in hot oil and they hiss and spit at me. In the basement, my son is yelling that I lied and it isn't fair. He's yelling that he's never going to build Legos again. He's taking the Lego containers my husband made with cardboard and duct tape and that I organized the Legos into carefully by color and he's emptying them. He's throwing all of the Legos into a massive chaotic pile. He's then carrying the empty boxes upstairs to throw them away. When I tell him that he's not allowed to throw them away, he grunts, throws the boxes down the stairs, follows behind and starts tearing them apart. I tell him he's not allowed to destroy the boxes. He runs upstairs to his room, screaming, wakes up his two-year-old sister who had just gotten to sleep. He says he hates this house. He says he hates me. I turn the pierogies. I want to scream too. It's day 61 of COVID lockdown. Day 61 of no school, no daycare, no babysitters, no help. In our last session, my therapist told me that I'm doing really well. We talk online and she says, overall, I've never been better. Strange that. Maybe this is what spending the past 41 years of my life with a raging anxiety disorder nets me. I've always been convinced that doom is right around the corner. So now that there's actual doom everywhere that everyone else can see, it's comforting. Like an old stained sweatshirt that looks awful, but feels great. I already know about meditating, using my breath to stay present, not following looping thoughts and realizing right now in this moment, I'm not in danger. 
I've been practicing that for decades. I know I'm in my home with people I love safe. The irony is that like lockdown has made my life open up in some ways. I don't have to commute or go out at night to perform in a show or make or keep weekend plans. Instead of all that, there's this emptiness. I've been someone that tries to fill up every moment with important novel events, but now my calendar is blank, each day the same as the next. It sits spacious, resting. The space initially bothered me, but I've accepted it. There's nothing else to do but accept it since it is what it is. And in this space, in this quiet, I found things. There are these moments that are just gorgeous, like a prism you hold up to the light and it catches a shimmer of sun and all the color is just so vibrantly visible all at once. I have a husband who I enjoy spending time with, even as we go on month two of him being the only adult I speak to. I enjoy my kids, my strange, delightful, odd kids. I'm grateful I still have a job, a husband who's able to dedicate his day to homeschooling and childcare, a support network that doesn't mind if I video call them every single day. We have food, shelter, love more than enough. And I've never been so grateful before in all of my life. But my six-year-old is not enjoying this time. When we first went into lockdown, he was upset every day, angry, petulant. I stayed up late. I stayed up late the night before Easter, hiding eggs and making extravagant Easter baskets. He and his sister hunted for the eggs in the front yard and found them all giggling, yelling with happiness. But then the eggs were all found. That part was over and my son said, where are the plastic eggs? I hadn't gotten plastic eggs because I figured real eggs and chocolate eggs and chocolate bunnies and jelly beans and a coloring book and bath bombs and a unicorn gun that shot goddamn bubbles would be enough. But they weren't, not for him. He threw his Easter, he threw his Easter basket into the air and ran inside yelling, Easter is ruined. I yelled back at him that day in the evening because his bad mood had continued all day and I was done being patient and understanding. I told him to shut up. I told him to go to his room and shut up until he could be nice. As he left, he turned to say one last mean thing before he went upstairs and I yelled at the top of my lungs, do not talk, go. He ran upstairs to his room crying and I sat on the living room floor flooded with anger. This is so hard. Why is he making it harder? Later, I got myself together I sat my son down on the couch and I asked him to talk about how hard this time is and how much he misses everyone. And he talked while hanging upside down off of the couch and playing drums on his stomach. He told me he's so mad, he hates the virus. He told me that his imaginary friend, Pink Hook, made the virus and she shouldn't have done that. And I hate his imaginary friend because it sounds like a horror movie, but I listened. I told him it's natural that he's mad at me and his dad because he needs to be mad at someone for how different life is now. I really hate the imaginary friend because, you know, Pink Hook. So yeah, I said, let's blame it on Pink Hook. Let's yell at Pink Hook. Let's throw Pink Hook into the fucking sun. So we did. He yelled and stomped and screamed at Pink Hook and picked her up and threw her all the way into the sun. It was so great. He was smiling. But that was a month ago. And today is today. My son comes back downstairs. I'm still making dinner. He's still mad about the Legos. He's in his pajamas and he's aggressively brushing his teeth. He says he's going to bed because he's mad at me and he's not eating dinner and he won't ever eat a treat or have any fun again. It touches me that he thinks that we're so connected that denying himself treats in any way hurts me. I know he's struggling because he's me, a tiny, 
masculine version of me. And I have bad days too, when I'm tired and hungry and just trying to make some damn pierogies while my six-year-old wages a smear campaign against me and my shitty mothering. I'm doing well until I'm not. Nothing to do but wait, stay still, close my lips to hold my sharp words in my mouth and hold the careful balance of not escalating our argument while also holding my son accountable for his actions. I just have to maintain the state until dinner is ready. A few months ago, I read about something called the default mode network. The default mode network or DMN is basically what our brains do when we aren't focused on a task. It's a part of your brain that worries, plans, considers, hopes, frets. It's the constant background noise of consciousness. Animals and young children don't have a default mode network, which is why they're so pleasant to be around. For the rest of us though, our brain is almost never fully at rest. We have to work to focus and to notice when that focus is slipping and our brain is sliding into the past or the future, creating worries that can't be resolved. I know six is the age that the default mode network comes online. I can't imagine how hard it must be for my son to have unlocked this new level of consciousness in the middle of a pandemic, to suddenly start worrying about the future during a time where there is no discernible future, just today repeating into infinity. Finally, dinner is ready. My son sits next to me, takes a bite of food, and suddenly has the capacity to understand that I will build Legos with him tomorrow instead, which is something I've said like 18 times already, but he is just now able to hear. He sits beside me and munches on his pierogi. He doesn't want to eat the mushrooms, but I'll take one bite. He says, okay, we can play Legos tomorrow. He says, okay, we can be friends again. He says, sorry for yelling, because he has a lot to learn about the world, his own mind, and these lessons that took me 41 years and a pandemic to really get through my own head. And he's just a tiny masculine me. So we forgive each other, sit in the present eating and trying not to think too hard about tomorrow. Thank you. Oh my God. I really needed to hear every single word of that. I, oh, uh, I, I just, it's something that I feel like we're all really going through and it's very hard to talk about these moments when your child is telling you that you've failed them. Um, yes. And it's a small failure, but it's a bigger failure, you know, and it's, and, and it's, you know, I, so many times I'm, I can make it through the day mm -hmm. taking on that emotional labor. And mm -hmm. then by the end of the day, I am also tired and I am also ready, you know, and I, and I find myself just being like, Stah! you know, and you feel terrible because you're the grown up, and you know, they're the break. right. And thing is you kept yourself from breaking about 28 times before yes that. exactly they don't understand yet I know I, I find myself saying to my kids when they're losing it about something can't I get credit for all the things that went right today honestly, <laughs> honestly the hardest part of my day still is the four minutes between when I say dinner's ready and we actually sit down and eat mm. it's, it's I don't know what happens but it's just absolute pure just chaos oh my god and everyone is just like i'm mad and everyone's hungry and i'm just like sit at the table and the worst <laughs> is when you know that is just like what happened in your piece you know as soon as they take that bite they're gonna feel so much better and it's just hungry yes yes oh my gosh my middle child is the hangriest person i've ever met in my life aside from myself and mm. and i can and i'll just say to him in the middle of a tantrum like here towns here's a here's a cheese stick Here's a cheese yeah. stick. Just take a bite. Take a bite. <laughs> but I, 
I, I want to hear how you, how you came to write that piece and how you came to structure it the way you did it sort of, you know, yeah, taking place while you're making dinner and you're thinking about things in the future and things in the past and things in the present. Yeah. How, how did you come to this kind of structure? Um, I really wanted to talk about how hard it is during the pandemic when you're sort of we're all adrift and sort of languishing and like, how, what do I do to also have to try to like steer a child through and like a pretty Mm -hmm. bright child who like, doesn't, isn't easily lied to and how hard it is to just be the adult and show grace to them and yourself Mm -hmm. and to like, cause that's what, that's a lot of what I think parenting really highlights the fact of life where it's just a series of gorgeous moments and then really like banal moments and then a few really terrible moments um, to varying degrees. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's your job to sort of be the, um, to be the, I was going to say the rock through it all. It's not the right word, but it's your job to, show them how to tolerate discomfort Mm. by actively tolerating discomfort in front of them. Um, And especially like I was sort of this whole like default mode network, this idea of like a a kid's brain suddenly like, I'm really interested in how childhood like cognition evolves and how like you go through different stages where they're suddenly able to understand something. always like a boon but then there's like a negative side to it like we were talking about a two-year-old versus a three-year-old mm-hmm. and what makes three-year-olds really hard is you can't distract them because they've reached a new level of consciousness where they're like no I remember I'm mad <laughs> you can't take that away from me where a two-year-old you're like look at this and they're like oh okay um, <laughs> so I'm just interested in like how also he was in many ways doing what I wanted to do you know, but I'm an adult. Like I want to throw a tantrum about the world. Um, and so sort of part of me is like envying that position, but then also just trying to like really understand it and empathize with it and to not be in a combative relationship with someone that's actively combating me. Mm-hmm. Did you get a lot of work done in that vein, Dana, during the pandemic, I mean, we're still in the pandemic, but kind of over the past couple years, year and a half, did you, was there a lot of writing you did um, kind of exploring that, that time and, and that kind of space of parenting or was, was this piece the result of like honing and honing and a distillation of so many things? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have written about the pandemic a lot. Like every time it's like, I actually, it's, it feels weird to admit this on a writing podcast, have not been writing very much. Mm, um, yeah, that makes two of us. Right, right. Every time I sit down to do it, the only thing coming out is pandemic. And I'm like, oh, I live this every day. I don't want to fucking write about it. Um, but that's what's happening. Yeah. And I feel like one day that work will be very important. You know, like, I mean, it's important now, but I mean, one day, hopefully when we're down the line and we're kind of able to look back on this time, that is going to be such a crucial part of your, of your work, you know? It is. It absolutely is. Like I just, um, I did a show last night. It was my first 
like my second show that I've done in person since the pandemic. Oh wow! Piece for it, and the piece was basically about how I was doing really well mentally throughout the you know the quarantine part of the pandemic. Like I said in that earlier piece, and then when I got my first vaccine, I had a panic attack. Oh because it was like you can see the finish line and then like your mm. body breaks down in a marathon yes yep like, mm-hmm. essentially i think that was what was happening so i am interested in that like uh, uh, i've been writing about processing and how to process and the fact that i'm really just i don't want to process i just want it to be 30 years from now when like yes. it's, and i'm like being interviewed by like my grandchild like what was the pandemic like? <laughs> <laughs> like, that's what i want i don't want to have to like actually deal with it but I have to in order to get through it like I, I can't just pretend it didn't happen or it isn't still happening you know well, yeah and it's this very strange moment where we've been forced to like the like the very like most local part of our lives like the smallest yeah. like you know home and and then also at the same time uh like these world ending you know world shaping things are happening and it's all at once yes yes i mean the fact that we're like dealing with a pandemic on top of like you know the political shit show Mm -hmm. and on top of uh, climate catastrophes and you're just like oh my god is this as bad as it's ever been but even in that and this is something that i think like my training from having an active anxiety disorder my entire life is like but is that happening in this room right now Mm-hmm. No, it's not. And there's a certain point where you think about you turning yourself into knots, worrying about it in your room isn't helping anything. And so then you're like, okay, well, what can I do that's helpful? And that also, how can I also just try to stay in the present and bring my focus to like what is here and what is now? And I've never had a deeper appreciation for like my husband and my kids. Mm-hmm. Hard to admit. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I know. appreciate them all the time. I know. That's something the pandemic has given me. It's so interesting because until hearing your piece and then just hearing you speak a little bit about your your writing and kind of thinking during this period, Dana, I hadn't I actually hadn't contextualized it that you know, that early uncertainty eventually became a type of certainty. It's like, we are in our houses and there was, I, I share that kind of like, um, I had a sense of calm during that period. I, when I was just like, okay, I'm home. <laughs> I mean, I was still going to work, but I, I enjoyed knowing that nothing else was happening actually. I mean, that, like in some way there was, I can really, I hadn't thought about it in, until you, until you described your experience getting the vaccine, but it was those transition periods. And then now kind of the forever transition period that are so dismaying, I feel like, especially. Yeah. There's a certain point where you're like, um, it was, it was because re- you just had to not see anyone, mm-hmm. and really hard, but then once you adjust to it, you're like, okay, I know what to do to stay safe. I just will not see anyone. Got it. Right. Off- done like it has its own challenges but like the 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 rules are simple 
<laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> like, suddenly the rules are like, you're like, oh, am I vaccinated? Like, I'm vaccinated, but like, are you vaccinated? Can I get my kids vaccinated? Like, exactly. they, like should they, like, are they going to go to in-person? Like, there's so many more variables. Right. And I think, I'm not saying that I want to just be in my house forever, but there was like, I'm an extrovert. I'm a performer. I'm always like hustling for stage time. I'm always trying to get gigs. I'm always like trying to get out there. And there was this quiet in the pandemic where like that wasn't possible, where I did find something where I was like, oh, I actually don't need to perform. Mm. I just like it. Mm-hmm. I don't need it. And that was, that was a good thing to, that was a good thing to know. Mm. Yeah. And, and I I was telling my husband, like, like a lot of bad stuff happened. I mean, of course, a lot of bad stuff happened in 2020, but also to our, like bad things happened (laughs) for us, but in a lot of ways, it was the best year of our family's life. Mm. And we were getting very like nostalgic for it as school was starting. Mm. And we were, you know, and my husband was going back to the office. It was kind of like, wait a minute. Oh no. You know, like we had gotten into a really good groove and we were, you know, like, just like you, we really love being around each other. And, um, and it was great to know that it was great to really learn, you know, know that for sure that, you know, we have that strong family bond. For sure. Like, and it was, in some ways it was like, when we first went into lockdown, I was, I, I I made a joke about it, but I meant it. I was like, I, this is like basically the same thing as having a newborn at home. Like I've done this before. Only mm-hmm. now I get, like, only now I actually get to sleep at night. This is <laughs> like, I've done three months without seeing anyone before. Like, fine. Um, so it was, and also going through it with kids was helpful because you know, even though my son like had difficulty transitioning into it, he ended up like going out on his bike every day and like meeting these neighbors that we hadn't really met. And, like he kind of formed like a child gang in our neighborhood. Oh yeah, like kids that would just like, <laughs> go around every evening and like collect each other after dinner. And it was very like sort of like nineteen fifties. Yes. Why weren't we doing this before? I remember seeing like so many people taking walks, you know, like families would be out walking. There'd be like the boy bike gang, the girl bike gang, like the skateboarder little gang. And like, and we would be so excited to see them every evening because it did, it really did feel like, Hey, you know, like we're getting back to (laughs) this like essential. And to just like really get to like know our neighbors and sink in with them. Yes. Like every night we can sit on the porch and just chat with each other. Yep. before I don't know it was just like not having I, I I was lucky enough to be able to work from home and I'm still working from home I'm still not back in the office wow. and I am fine with that because it gives me this like incidental time with my kids and yeah, you don't come home all like like harried and like wearing makeup and like uncomfortable pants mm-hmm. like I have all this found time but yeah, I think that it's something that coming out of the pandemic that I'm really thinking about is like how to restart an active writing practice. Cause there's a lot of material, like we've all been through a lot mm-hmm. and I gotta be honest without an audience, I'm a writer that needs someone waiting for the pages, mm-hmm. very externally motivated. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wrote a book after I was hired to write the book. 
Oh. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the way that my book came about is a little bit of, I think, an odd story. I think that there, this is a type of publishing contract that's out there, but it isn't one that's often, I think, it was, I wasn't familiar with it, which basically was a publishing company had identified the fact that people wanted a book about storytelling. And it's sort of like a technology company where they like read Amazon reviews and determine what books people wish they had read. Whoa. Huh. Seriously, seriously. And then they say, okay, well, let's go make that book. Like, oh, these people really want a book about, uh, I don't know, like keto recipes. <laughs> like, go find an expert on keto recipes to write the book. Huh. And so basically I didn't pitch the book. They came to me and said, there's a book that we want to have written you seem like you can do this. And so it was a really sort of backwards process. Um, Cause I've always like, you know, I've pitched books before and to no success. I've never had someone pitch me to write a book. Wow. So ultimately they came in. And so it was a little interesting in that they already knew what they wanted it to be. They had the title already. That is and so wild. It is, isn't it? And so then I, um, it was a negotiation because there's certain parts of it where they, they had a certain chapter and I was like, no, that's not going to work. I want to write this chapter <laughs> for this, this, and this reason. Cause like, I don't, I don't know what that is. <laughs> um, you knew your goal. I did. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I was like, well, you know, it's like, you know, the book was essentially their idea, but like my name's on it. So I'm going to just put as much of me there as I can. And yeah. And so that worked, but because they went at me with this process, it was really like, great. Here's the contract. Great. You're going to sign the book. You're going to write the book. Here's the basic outline. Let us know if you want to do changes. And then also you have, um, I had two months. Ooh. Holy God. Yeah. I basically typed like a crazy person between the hours of 7 and 9 p.m. Oh. <laughs> That's what I did. We had dinner and then I was like, bye, husband, you're a single parent. I'm going to be in my bedroom having an absolute breakdown. Oh, my God. <laughs> typing as fast as I can, which I actually highly recommend. I'm like, everyone should like. Yeah, I think it's the same thing that you were saying. Like, it's it's another way of like someone of like putting a fire under your ass. You know, it's sort like, of, yeah. and it's, it's like, I'm like, well, what, what if it's bad? It's like, well, it's gonna go through edits. Like, I don't know. I feel like many times, at least for me as a writer, being willing to to just produce something and then fix it later. Like when I teach writing classes, I always tell my students, you have to make it before you can fix it. Mm but it's hard to take your own advice and you want it to be perfect. And then like you get into a, a place where you're like, oh, this isn't working, it's crap, it's crap. And you're like, you're not a reliable narrator when you're in the middle of the creative process. You just have to, <laughs> you just have to make it, <laughs> trust yourself and just do the thing. So it showed me I can write a book and I plan on writing another one and using the same method. Wow. And another nonfiction about storytelling? No, um, a, a, a memoir. <gasps> Love that. Yes. Yes. I'm planning on doing a memoir about basically living in Chicago in my 20s. Oh, yes, Perfect. please. And sort of the gifts the city gives and also the um, 
What's the opposite of a gift? <laughs> There's your title. Uh, what's the opposite? I should know this. <laughs> the things it steals from you, I guess, is the opposite. Oh, yeah. Be robbed. Um, but yeah, because it's, um, I, I feel like it's a really interesting, it's a wonderful city and I miss it dearly. And moving away was the right choice for my family. And I don't regret it, but it, there's a, just a magic there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I yeah, have to agree. In Chicago, correct? Mm-hmm. I'm out in the burbs, but yes. Yes. Right. There's like this, like, um, there's this thrum to it. And there's this, it's just, I joke that a lot of the things I miss about Chicago, I just miss about like, you know, life before kids too where you just (laughs) like where will I go I don't know it's all open but to be a creative person living in that city and to be sort of in search of uh, I was in search of my creative voice I was in search of love I was in search of many things and I found them all there like wow but I got all of it from like Chicago gave me everything that I wanted I just had to like humble myself before it Wow. Yeah. It's, it's, I feel so lucky that I came of age as a writer here because Hmm. it's a place where people are genuinely excited and collaborative and, Mm -hmm. you know, like doing their own thing as well and just totally open and like wanting to see what people are up to. And, and, or at least it was when I was in my twenties and and early thirties. Um, the, the creative scene in Chicago, the, the amount of collaboration, the amount of the fact that there's no money there. Right. So like people support each other because it's yeah. like no one's making money doing this. No one's getting rich. Like coming up in the performance scene, it, it was like a second like grad school education. Like It was like a grad school education. Totally. That I totally. got at the feet of like my colleagues who were out there writing and performing and I would see them do something that blew the doors off the room and be like how did they do that and then go home and like figure it out can you talk a little bit about how your anxiety and your extroverted nature work together or against each other because you know yeah like how how do you make it work as a as someone who loves to perform their their stuff so yeah I am a, a a deeply anxious person but here's the thing about it the way my brain works is when I'm performing I'm in control Mm. When I'm in front of a room, literally, I could like have a nervous breakdown. I could strip naked. I could set fire to something. I could really embarrass like my entire family. But you have to watch. <laughs> and I find a freedom in that. <laughs> and I don't know if it's healthy. <laughs> but that's the thing. Like, there's a control there. Like, if I'm on the mic, I'm in control. Like, I'm driving. And, you know, you want to do better and you want to, there's this thing about it where there's this instant feedback that you get from the audience too, where it's also like, you got to earn it. Like you got to do your work. You got to, um, you have to rehearse and you have to be sure that you know what you came to say and you have Mm -hmm. to say it clearly and really well um, to be worthy of their time. Because I've joked that like, a live performance is basically a hostage situation. <laughs> like they could get up and leave, but societal norms, like they probably won't. They're very powerful. The norms are powerful. 
Yes, their arms are powerful, but they can easily check out and just think about their grocery list. Like you need to be more interesting than their interior monologue. Mm-hmm. How? And so in terms of anxiety and performing, I get nervous every time before I perform. Um, and that's good because uh, nervousness and excitement are the same feeling mm-hmm. with just different names. <laughs> So um, it's a good thing to do to, um, I get anxious about stuff I can't control, but when I'm performing, I feel like I can't control it. And that comes from like a lot of time doing it and doing different types of performances. And also from knowing that I did my due diligence, I wrote my piece out or I've rehearsed it. I know what I'm going to say. Like, I'm not going up there unprepared. If I was, that would be a nightmare. Um, but yeah. So yeah, that's how I navigate that difference. And you, for Story Club, you say that people have eight minutes and then they can tell their story. Um, mm-hmm. how, do you, how do you enforce the eight minutes? You know, that's a great question. Um, when I first started the show, I was you know, I was in my late twenties and, um, I'm in my forties now and it's not hard, but when I was in my late twenties, I was like, you know, I remember at an early story club show, someone was up there for 18 minutes and I was like, Oh my God. Oh my God. What do I do? What do I do? Cause like, you're supposed to be driving the, but I was like, do I interrupt him? Then he's going to be, he's going to be ashamed and embarrassed. Everyone's going to be embarrassed. Like, what do I do? So, um, what I do is I put a timer up there with them and I set it for eight minutes. And then when the beep goes off, we all know it went off. Mm. So then at that point, I'll go up and interrupt them if they're still going on. Um, But also, yeah, it just had to be like, I had to realize that when I'm producing the show, I am beholden to the audience, someone who left their house to come out to a bar on like a Thursday night to not watch Netflix, like they did a lot of work to be there. Mm -hmm. They deserve to be treated well and to be made to be very comfortable. And when you set an expectation, you then have to enforce it. Yeah, and I feel like that that helps a ton. We did a similar thing at a reading uh, series that I used to have. It was five minutes. And then the audience knows, like even if this is torturous, it's over after this amount of time. Oh, we've literally had someone once come up on the open mic and just make robot noises. Oh, no. I was like, should I stop this? Ugh. Eight minutes is a long time to do that. It's a long time to make robot noises. Oh, my God. Did he really go the whole eight minutes? It was definitely a guy, right? He filled, filled, of course, it was a white man, yes. Of course. Uh, Of course. Sorry. Um, No, no. I don't think he was really necessarily fully with us you know sure part robot sure yeah you know like he was having his own adventure in his mind Mm -hmm. and so I was like well at the end of the day I said you get eight minutes you get eight minutes like if you want to make a robot noise for eight minutes wow that sucks but it'll be over it only happened the one time (laughs) like most people go up there and actually like try to do something interesting that other people can like yeah and do you feel like as you're telling stories in life, I, I feel like a lot of times I'm, I, I'll tell a story and I'll get to the end, but the way that my voice inflects it, it doesn't sound like the end. So then I'll just go. And so, 
<laughs> yeah. You know, like, do you feel like you being a master storyteller are able, like you are better at not doing those things, you know? Yes. Um, definitely. That, that is one of the things is don't undercut the ending. Like usually I'll just pause and I'll be like, yeah. like thank you i don't know oh my god (laughs) this like that's my time i'm like that's not a conclusion (laughs) that's my time is not a conclusion (laughs) to anything what's your favorite way to end a story my favorite way to end a story is with something um this is funny so like alex and i went to the same mfa program Mm started it I had you know a couple years of storytelling like live performance under my belt and the thing that I really struggled with in the program but like what it gave to me was this idea of like you have but like the reflection piece of it Mm. why and I was like I don't know why it's just a funny story and like why why does it matter to you and I'm like ah I was it made me profoundly uncomfortable Mm mm-hmm and now endings are some of my favorite things because it's the point where you can really take the audience to a place of rest and leave them with what it is you want them to walk away with. Mm-hmm. And it's a moment where you can like lift them up. You can just devastate them and crash them to the ground. <laughs> like, <laughs> you leave them in the emotion. I really think of it as like, what emotion do I want you to have? Which is then you have to ask yourself, what emotion do I have? Mm-hmm. Um, so like in the piece that I read, you know, it's the sense of like, okay, we got through this. Yay. But like, I didn't solve anything. Mm-hmm. I like to leave it open. You know, I don't like bows. I don't like being like, and then I realized that I'm a writer. And, and then writer, the sunset. Yes, exactly. And then my son never yelled again. <laughs> um, that's not how life works. Right. And I, I try to straddle between like when you think of storytelling, it's very, you know, you think of something that's uh, can be wrapped up cleanly and that, but I'm also uh, consider myself an essayist and an essayist, nothing's clean and nothing's wrapped up. Mm-hmm. So to allow myself to ask questions and not answer them is kind of my favorite. Yeah. Like leave them wanting more, leave them thinking and thinking yeah. and thinking and thinking. And to also be like, no one knows the answer, man. man it's life man make the pierogies make the pierogies man that's all there is i don't know what i don't know either and neither do you so like i'm not gonna pretend like i have the answer because i don't i just what is it what does it look like when you're crafting one of these stories that you know you're gonna perform like what how do you begin like how do you edit yeah like i'll usually start with like i'll have an idea of what it is i want to talk about you know i really do Sometimes I'll be like, oh, I need to write. I need to write. And my husband's been like, you are writing. Like you're in your head, like mm-hmm. writing right now. Like mm-hmm. I think about it a lot before I even start to type um, in terms of like, what is it? I like to write about things that bother me. And I like to write about things that are unresolved because I know that there's something there to it. Um, so I'll start writing. And generally what I end up doing is from performing, I know you got to grab them quick. Mm-hmm. You got to immediately sort of let them know where are you and when and introduce a problem very quickly. And so that's what I, if I don't start that way automatically, I'll go back and retrofit it in. Like when I first wrote that story um, that I shared with you, there weren't any pierogies in it. Mm. 
were no pierogies. I was just, you know, my son's yelling about Legos and I talked about Easter and like the default mode network. And I was like, I need something like, these are ideas, but like, I need something concrete to like weigh this down with sort of to like, you know, put its feet on the ground. And I know that like the universal is in the specific and the yeah. more specific, let's say I was making dinner, what were you making? Mm-hmm. And as you, as I thought through it, it was like, oh yeah, you know, the oil burns me every time I make them. And so it's this idea of having something really specific and concrete as a touchstone, especially if you're trying to weave in these sort of ideas that are more like ethereal to like have something to come back to and like touch on it a few times. And I feel like that's such a great tip because I always tell like anytime I teach a, a workshop, it's usually about like finding your voice or getting over block. And, and one of the things I always tell them is locate yourself or locate the scene and do it by really yes. describing this lamp that's in the room yes. or this rug yes. that's in the room, because yes. it, you know, you start to really find, you start to really see, I think is what happens mm-hmm. and it all yeah. comes from there. And it's like, I didn't intend the fact that the pierogies spitting at me were going to like mirror the way my son was spitting at me. <laughs> That's why the unconscious is amazing. Right. <laughs> so much in writing, because then you read it back and you're like, I'm a genius. <laughs> like I did that on purpose. No, I didn't. <laughs> but I also think that when you're writing, I really do trust my creative intuition in terms of like getting out of your own way and letting the stuff come out the way it falls. And you'll find just gifts in it. But in order to do that, you also have to, you know, write down a lot of crap that you're going to cut out. Like, you know, writing and editing are two separate things. Yeah. Joy, I just read an interview with Joy Williams and she was quoting somebody else, I think. And she said, uh, you have to try hard to make sure that what you're writing isn't what it's about. And I (laughs) I almost feel like that's kind of what we're talking about here, you know, like, Mm -hmm. Because if it was what it was about, maybe it would just be a single sentence, right? I don't know. I think the the meaning of it shifts. You have to allow the chaotic space for discoveries to be made. Mm -hmm. Like if you come in, I have to have a little bit of improv to it. Even when I'm performing and I'm reading something written down, I allow myself the space to, if a joke comes to me in the moment, or I want to change a sentence around in the moment, I let myself do it. Mm-hmm. Because like you know you can feel the audience and you can kind of like a, a brilliant thing happens during performance where it's it when you're sitting in the audience I think that you get the feeling that the person up there performing is the one doing the work but the audience is doing a lot of the work too mm-hmm. yep. and to really be able to when you're up there tap into that and be like oh you liked that like they'll give a positive response you're like thank you <laughs> i can do more of that you like or, that you like Check that. this out <laughs> yeah woohoo and also it's like as a performer um people don't make an audible sound when they're like being moved emotionally but there's still a for lack of a better word a vibe in the room mm-hmm. you can tell when you got them when they're and, wrapped yes Yes, wrapped people don't cough and they don't get <laughs> in their faces. <laughs> you you don't see the glow of their phone on their face? No, if you want to devastate a performer, cough or unwrap something. Oh. Change your board. Oh my so God. 
Who who's your favorite storyteller? Oh my God. Um that's a really good question. I love it. So my favorite storyteller, I would say in Cleveland, it is Dina Nair Mendelowitz. Ooh. She is a performer. She does a show. Actually, I did her show yesterday. It's called Mental Illness and Friends. Love and it. it's a talk show where like people come on and like just do a little performance piece about their specific mental illness. And then she interviews them afterwards, like a talk show. Oh my God. Sounds awesome. It's freaking great. And she is so funny and so astute and just like her style. I really like storytellers whose styles are different from my own because, you know, I'm a real um, grab by the throat and talk really fast the whole time. <laughs> so if someone like allows for space, I'm like, how are you not talking right now? That's amazing. <laughs> um, and she does that. Um, Shannon Kaysen. He lives in Detroit now. Um, we met in Chicago. He is brilliant in terms of a master of the pause. This man, every time he tells a story, you would swear to God he's making it up on the spot and he is not. Wow. But he's so able to give that experience of telling it for the first time every time. And he's not afraid of going slow and pausing. And he really has the audience with him while he does that. Like he's a master at it. I was just gonna say, I really admire people who uh, can live through pauses because that's yeah. my kryptonite. Right? I don't know what's wrong with me, but like if someone, if I'm talking to someone and they give me nothing and they just let me keep going, I, I, I will spin myself. Like one time I was at, I was at a reading and I was speaking to the author's wife and she was there with her parents mm. and I was like just talking to them and they were just kind of letting me talk and, and being, you know, just smiling politely as I went on and on. And, um, I talked to myself all the way up to saying, you know, after talking about what a brilliant author this person was that maybe one day I could be in a threesome with him and his wife. And I said this <laughs> oh my God. in front of her and her parents and my husband who was sitting there staring at me like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> like, he didn't know what to do. He did not know what to do. Stop me from talking. You have to talk. That, and that, and that was I, two minutes, right? It was like two minutes total. That you got it was there. nothing. It was maybe 37 seconds. And oh that's all because they were giving me nothing. There was no, uh-huh. There was no, wow. There was nothing. It was just like staring as I spoke. Oh my God. My heart beating into my throat. And then I was like, and yeah, they're both sexy people. And maybe, you know, like, I don't, I don't even remember exactly what I said, but it was, the gist was, yeah holy shit i'm a sexual predator mm -hmm. nice to meet you random parent here to see your son-in-law uh, here's it. my business card appreciate it oh so my i God. i need i need storytelling help or i just yeah. need to be medicated i guess i don't know no no to have the confidence and that's why a lot of people when they get started with storytelling they go funny because you get the feedback right um, yes and then going not funny is so hard because they're silent the whole time and then they applaud and you're like, is that a lie? And then you just sit down and <laughs> is that a lie? <laughs> Are you just being nice? Like, I like to think I can like really rate applause and like how like authentic it is. Oh, like I really have like an ear for like an applause where they like could not wait to applaud or an applause where it's like, Oh, I guess we should applaud now. Um, oh God. I had I do not know I do not know I've never done the scientific research on it um but yeah it's really hard to be vulnerable in that way to allow for 
silence and space. And I think it is something that I still work on to not just do a cheap joke and to trust in yourself and trust that what you're saying, you're like, well, if you don't like it, I guess, okay, that's your, then you're having a bad night. I'm sorry. It's so funny because as you guys were talking about silence and (laughs) I just keep thinking, I have enough customer service experience to just be silent through almost anything. I could, (laughs) I I have dealt with so many lunatics over the years (laughs) saying anything you could possibly imagine to me that I was just in, you know, in different cities, whatever suburbs, suburbs are definitely worse in this case, but I was like, yeah, no, I, I think I actually can do this. I think I can actually just be silent through most of this. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, that's, that's actually, yeah, I've got, I've got serious reps with this for sure. No, when someone is like, when someone is like completely freaking out like that, that is the best thing to do is to just let them wear themselves out. Let them push back. It's like judo. Like they push, you pull, they fall over. (laughs) Exactly. It is like (laughs) judo. I love that. And yeah, my I, storytelling is just judo with myself. Oh, no. <laughs> and then we both fall over. That should be the name of a book. Write that down. <laughs> judo with my- oh my goodness. If somebody wants to, thinks that they have stories inside them yeah. that they want to tell, what, what advice do you give them when they're just um, starting out? My advice is to don't wait for permission. And, you know, I know we've been in a pandemic and a lot of things have been slower, but it's starting to open back up. And especially if you live in the city, someone is doing a show like this, someone, and they might call it something else. They might call it stand up, but someone is doing a show where people get to go on stage and tell their stories. So find it. And you're going to feel like you're going to die and throw up and then you're going to do it. And this is something I also tell my students is that if you do an amazing job, you're going to go home afterwards and sit on the couch in your house. (laughs) (laughs) If you do a terrible job, you're going to go home afterwards and sit on the couch in your house. So the stakes are very high. Um, I love that. No one's given out multi-million dollar contracts at, you know, one of these shows. So the goal isn't to be good. The goal is to say what you want to say, to communicate the idea you want to communicate. And if the audience likes it or doesn't, it is not your concern. Mm. Your concern is, did they understand you? Wow. And that's really what I think people should focus on. Don't focus on being liked, focus on being understood. That is like universally true for every kind of writing or storytelling. And it's something we all struggle with. It is because you want them to like it, but like, what, what does that even mean? <laughs> you know, I want, I want to be on the cover of Sassy. I want to go back in time and be on the cover of Sassy. That's what it means for me. Side pony. How many letters I wrote to Sassy and then I published one of them. God. Uh, well, actually, no, it was the poetry. I, I wrote so many bad poems and sent them to their poetry corner and they were right. They were right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't agree. How dare they? No, <laughs> no. wonder they went under. Yeah. <laughs> I love so much. I actually have a stack of old sassies. Oh my god! Oh, I wish I had our me and my sister. It was my sister's subscription, but she. I always got to read them after her, and oh, so influential. uh, Seriously iconic. It was just the publication. Please Um, come back, sassy. 
how do you, how do you help people through the permission part of it? You mentioned like, don't wait for permission. And that is such a big thing for people because Mm -hmm. especially when they're talking about things from their lives. Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. It's, it's universal truth, especially for new storytellers. And it's funny, like in my day job, I actually got the opportunity to work on gathering stories from my colleagues for a project. And it was true even then professionally, this idea of no one thinks that they are interesting. And no one thinks that their story is actually going to mean anything to anyone else. And they completely don't understand how nosy everyone is Mm. and how, even though their experience is specific to them, emotion is universal. So even if I've never had that experience, I will understand the emotion of it if you can show it to me. So I think that what I often do in my writing classes is on the very first storytelling class, I basically trick them and I make them sit down and I give them a prompt and I say, start writing. And the goal is to write without stopping. And you're, you know, I, I do a left brain, right brain. Um, I set, I frame it that way, even though left brain, right brain isn't really, isn't really a thing, but I say like, I want you to just let the story come out in the way it comes out. And part of you is going to be like, I'm a fraud. I shouldn't do this. <laughs> Stupid. Just, it doesn't matter. Just keep writing. Just keep writing. We're just going to make content. And so, and I don't tell them how long they're going to write for because I'm like, oh, no, your inner critic is going to be like, oh, only 10 minutes left. I'm not telling you that. You have mm. no idea. You just have to write. So, and then at the end, and someone always does it. Thank God, I've been doing it for like 10 years and no one, no class has ever rebelled. Um, at the end, I say, okay, now someone share part of it. You know, it doesn't have to be the whole thing. It can be just a sentence. But what happens is someone will then share part of what they wrote and there's always something there. And then the class will like react to it. And there's always something worthwhile that came out. Mm. So the idea of you don't necessarily know what's interesting to someone else. What you have to do is trust yourself and think if it's interesting to you, it will be interesting to someone else. And that's something that I really work on with my students is saying, you know, uh, I don't know if people that don't have a six-year-old and don't know what Legos are (laughs) (laughs) would be interested in that story, but you just have to be like, well, there's probably gonna be something in there emotionally that anyone can relate to. And to just trust your own instinct and to say, if it's fascinating to you, it will be fascinating to someone else. If you can explain it well. That's the rub. (laughs) The explaining it well part for sure. Yes, that's why we uh, take classes and have edits. Yep, that's right. That's why you just keep going. that's That's why we're not just reading off what we just wrote in front of an audience you know. speak for yourself <laughs> <laughs> i've made a living off doing that <laughs> i haven't made a living um dana thank you thank you thank you so much for coming on this has yes, been an absolute thanks, pleasure you guys i so appreciate it i will you know, be honest and say, I just reach out to Alex and say, I want to be on your podcast. So thank you. for. <gasps> I love that. Yeah. And I said, yes, because you're awesome. And we're so excited that you came. And so thank Dana, you. Listen, yeah, but that's another thing is like, just shoot your shot guys. Just shoot. Yeah. Your shot. And, and Alex does, Alex so rarely says me, yes. Not to me. Alex yeah. rarely says yes. Yeah. So that N- don't, means don't something. fucking email me unless you're Dana. <laughs> <laughs>
do not fucking email me. I'm going to cut that out, Alex. So nobody knows. Okay. <laughs> you can keep the, no, no, no. Keep the part where I said, don't fucking email me. <laughs> but Dana, yes. Thank you so much. It was so awesome to have you come on. You guys, this has been such a treat. This is so fun. I absolutely loved what you read and I can't wait to, to read more. Thank I you so it. much for sharing that with us. Thank you guys. That was a lot of fun, especially because as I was reading Dana's book, I had only read her narrative stuff before, you know, obviously. And when I read the book, I was like, why, like, how did she arrive at this? Like, this is so interesting. And like, a lot of it is like such great nuts and bolts. Like, how do you even begin? Uh, You know, it was really interesting to kind of go through it, but it's like a different kind of book in that way. And when she told us how it came about I was like oh my god now it makes sense but I yes. could not I could not reverse engineer how it came to be because I was like <laughs> I was like the audience was like a little I was like a little I was like okay it's not really for writers and it's not really for I was like it's, it's not really for students in a certain way it's like I was trying to it really is kind of you know it's kind of for people who feel like they have something that they want to express and, and are struggling to do it, whether that be, uh, you know, telling a story in like a show format, like Dana was describing, or, you know, even something as simple as she, you know, she talks about like, you know, a speech at a wedding or a eulogy or something. Um, but the book is really interesting that way, especially because we have not covered a non-narrative book for the, for the show. So it was really interesting to kind of go through it that way. Yeah. And, and there's like a thriving storytelling community. And like she said, sometimes they call it like stand up or open mic or whatever. Um, and it's cool to kind of see like their method or a method put into, you know, like a manual basically. And I was even looking at it in terms of like my own writing, which is very, very different. Um, sure. but even like distilling it down to like, okay, this thing you're writing, what's your goal? It's like, mm-hmm. oh my God, I never considered that, <laughs> you know, it's just like, my goal is to write 500 words today, I guess. <laughs> I mean, something like, uh, you know, there's a, one of the, the book is kind of organized around 10 principles or 10 rules that Dana has, uh, come up with for storytelling. And one of them is uh, you know, about identifying patterns and ways to break your patterns. And I, I thought that was even interesting. Like it, so it's, good. it's a, yeah, it's great. It's great to kind of essentialize what you're doing, whether it be actually writing or, you know, telling a story on stage or something. And uh, so that was, it was really fun to go through the book and just kind of think about your own work through that lens. Cause it's definitely something I wouldn't have done otherwise. So I'm yeah, glad and I it's did like, it. It's like a perky book like the way totally. that it's laid out and set up and everything is yeah, like yeah. really fun mm-hmm. and um yeah you could hand like, it to anybody yeah exactly there's mm-hmm. just like really good solid advice in there that you can apply to any kind of writing um my only story is i i was gonna be a part of god what was that storytelling series called do you remember honey moth no the right club no it was okay. It was like this. 
Yeah. If you wanted people off the stage, you had to snap your fingers. If you didn't like their huh. story, you snapped your finger. The audience would snap their fingers and then the okay. person had to leave. And they had like this big extravaganza reading at the Metro. Uh-huh. And they asked me to be a part of it, even though I had never, ever done, I had never met them. I had never done any storytelling. They just knew that I was like making a name for myself with my reading series quickies. What year so, are we talking? Oh God. Like Oh six. Okay. Oh seven probably 07, maybe 08, um, in the OOs. And, uh, so I went, I got there, they told us to get there early before the show started. So I got there at like 3 PM. The show started, they told us to get there around then the show started, I think like seven or eight. Wait, what? I, you got there yes, you got there that early because we all had to do like mic checks and they had to make sure we were there and accounted for. Holy shit. And I stayed there till 2 a.m. They never called me up because they had so many performers. And the people, the Metro cleaning staff started cleaning up. The lights came on. They were still calling people to the stage to perform. What? <laughs> I was there. For, part of me st- is still there. I think part of me died and it will remain there forever. Oh my God. And they just never. And I was like, I'm going to leave, I guess, because. Were you <laughs> like the, pissed or were you yes. just confused? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was so mad. I was so <laughs> fucking mad. <laughs> Did I? Yeah. Okay. Ben remembers that I. ripped them on MySpace. I ripped them on MySpace, but I don't remember that. They, they read it and they got mad. They read it and they got mad. Well, you know what? Kiss my grits, whoever you were. <laughs> we both forgot each other. <laughs> oh my God. Um, but they were super big and like huge audience and like huh. a very devoted following. Weird. And like it's a it's like a totally different community than what I'm used to as a person who reads, you know, fiction all the right. time and every once yeah. in a while an essay. So they're out there, man. If you've got a story to tell, find, like she said, they're all over the place. Find mm-hmm the club find the event and go do it i yeah absolutely do it i have that nothing sounds less appealing to me in the world than doing that but please do that can i leave that in oh fuck yeah absolutely because i don't mean i'm not talking shit i just like like the idea of just like going up and winging it or not even that, just like telling a story. I'm just like, I can't, no, I just can't. It is such a skill because I'm telling you. Oh, totally. Oh, it's, oh my God. Yeah. My non sequiturs that end in like, and then lead nowhere. Like right now, like what I'm doing right now. I don't have it in me. I really don't have it in me. I don't have it in me either. My boys will ask me and Ben, like, tell us a story from your childhood. And he always has really good ones. And I'm always like, Duh. <laughs> I got, I don't remember anything. Oh my God. I don't have anything. No, I don't have anything either. I I'm like, I'm like in conversation. I think I can be funny if it's like, you know, me and I'm in the room and maybe you like me, but other than that, it's like, I'm just kind of like, nah, I don't really, I don't really have the goods, you know, oh my which God. is fine. It's fine. It's totally fine. I want to go back in time and see you courting your wife. Jesus how Christ. That, how that went. <laughs> well, have you ever gotten drunk at a bar? <laughs> no, I haven't. What's that like? Well, well <laughs> if you want to meet a husband, it's, it's a tactic. Okay. That's good. That's also good advice for anyone <sighs> listening out there. Yeah. Drink. Just drink. Yep. Oh, Jesus. Yep, that's an option. <laughs>
Uh, I just finished reading Gina Frangello's memoir, Blow Your House Down. You loved it. You loved it. God. Okay. It like kills you within the first 20, 30 pages. Completely just fucking kills you. And then from there is where you finish reading the next 300 pages. Oh my Um, God. It is raw. Like she doesn't, I, I, I really feel like she tried her damnedest to be as honest as possible um, about everything that went down, you know, her divorce and her parents dying and her cancer Mm. and everything that has happened in the past decade for her. Um, But it's also like, it's, it's, it's about like how women always are trying to see themselves through the eyes of the people they love and how they are trying to form themselves into what they think those people want. And then like she kind of calls herself out for that and says it's her way of controlling things because, you know, she wants everything to be good and nice and happy. Um, and I don't know, it, it, it is, it was like hard to read at times because it's such a, like a psychological, like thunder cloud, um, but so beautiful and so honest and like, holy shit. I mean, it just cements her legendary status in my opinion. Mm, I've always um, meant to read her. Um, she's just one of those people I haven't gotten. I think she, I think she taught at Northwestern or does teach at Northwestern, but um, she is. Yeah. I definitely picked that one up. Yeah. That book is uh, like destined to be a book that women brandish for years to come. Just like, fuck you read this. <laughs> Had you read uh, her work before Lindsay? I've only ever done, you know, like readings with her and, mm-hmm. and read her online. Um, I have one of her books and I'm definitely going to read it now. Uh, I think it's a life in men. It's a novel. Um, yeah, she's wonderful. She's that's awesome. She's so great. So highly recommend that. That's awesome. What have you been up to? I, I mean, reading wise, the only thing I've, the only thing I read recently is I read these two Alice Monroe stories. Oh my gosh, she's um, the best. Yeah, she's a favorite of mine for sure. Um, because my buddy Willie and I are on a podcast talking about them. And then so I had like reason to like read them over and over and study them. And it was so fun. I just, I, I was telling somebody recently, I was like, I feel like I've had novel brain for so long that yes. to get back to just reading short stories and like really thinking about them was so fun. Um I feel like I haven't done that in forever. Yeah. And stories are really my, my like first love, my favorite. And, um, what stories were they? It was a friend of my youth. Oh, come on. And, uh, Manisa tongue. I may be pronouncing that incorrectly, but, um, they appear back to back in the selected. So if you have the selected Monroe, they're back to back. And then they both appeared in the collection friend of my youth and they're separated by one story there. But, um, they're really interesting to think about together because um, they're both about writing in a really direct way. Um, and they're also just both absolutely fucking batshit wild. Um, <laughs> I know. Just, I feel like she doesn't get enough credit for that. Oh my God. I mean, she can be dark as shit. Oh my God. And also just like what she actually does structurally in these stories. I mean, we spend like an hour and a half talking about it on this podcast, but it's like just, it's, it's staggering. When you really look at what she's doing, it's, it's absolutely staggering. And then it's undercut the whole time by these, you know, the sentences are never showy, but they're completely perfect. They're exacting. Um, and 
the thing I kept thinking about and talking about when we were doing the, the podcast um, was so often what you get when someone is making like a strange or unique or daring structural move, it's paired with like showy sentences or some kind of like bravado in the sentences as well. There's not restraint on a sentence level paired with that very often. Mm. And that's like what Monroe does in spades. Like she never is, she's never like, you're never reading her sentences and think like, Oh my God, she's really like going for it there. It's just like, it's the right sentence. Mm. And yet structurally she's doing things that like when you actually map out what she's doing, it's <laughs> no one else does it. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Um, what podcast anyway, was it? It was uh, lit century. Um, oh yeah. yes. That is so exciting. Yeah. So it'll be, it'll be fun to come out. Um, probably a couple of weeks or something, but um, they're putting one out. That's all about uh, two Christopher Pike books. Oh yeah. Right. 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 So who you, who you were a big fan of, right? Hell yeah. I loved Christopher Pike, big Christopher Pike fan. Not so much RL Stein fan, which I feel makes mm. me unique. <laughs> we'll give it to you. Sure. Yeah. Um, and speaking of podcasts, our friend, friend of the pod, Aaron Summers has started a podcast. Oh yeah. Um, all about Jonathan Franzen. Is it out yet? I I great question. I don't know. My hesitancy to listen to it is because I have never read any Jonathan Franzen. I tried to read The Crossroads Everybody. and I couldn't finish it. Wait, the, uh, the Crossroads. I meant the corrections. <laughs> no, but the new one's called Crossroads. Busted. Busted. Oh, my husband got busted. Anyway, I meant the corrections. Yeah, I've read um, like 10 pages of it and I thought like this is good, but not for me. But yeah, I'd be interested in reading him at some point. He's just one of those ones I, yeah, I never, I never was that curious. Well, this podcast is making me want to read it. And yes, for to sure. Because yeah, um, yeah. Aaron's so smart and I feel like she's a, a Franz expert, if I can put those two words together. You did. Um, I did. I did it. So, and I don't remember, I, now I don't even remember what it's called, but look it up. I really fucking like birds. It's called, I really fucking like birds, according to Ben. <laughs> what a jerk. Why am I married to him? Don't read freedom. That sucks. He says, don't read freedom. Free that sucks. Free. <laughs> free yourself from freedom. He says. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> I'm trying to find out what it's called. Aaron Summers, friend of the pod. Oh, fuck. oh, it's called Mr. Difficult. That's so cute. It's a good name. Mr. Difficult is the name of the podcast. It's with Aaron Summers, Alex Shepard, and Eric Jett. How awesome would it be if it was called Little Bitch? <laughs> Find the podcast. It's called Little Bitch <laughs> with Aaron Summers. Uh, I love it. I feel like Aaron Summers uses the phrase, the phrase Little Bitch. Sure. Um, anyway. Yeah, that's about it. We watched uh, we got. Freaky last night, which was uh, great. And it's on HBO Max. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> no. Sorry, I, I end up la like, you know, I've talked to you for many hours at this point in my life now. And so like during the interviews, <laughs> I'll just start laughing when you say certain things. And like, so we watched Freaky on HBO Max. And it's just like, I can't. It's like, it's perfect. I've uh, explained to you my problem. Okay. No, I, no, no. I, I mean, I need help okay i'm in the bag for you i love it just keep it up oh my god okay goodbye
Bye. I'm a Writer Butt is recorded by Alex Hickley and me, Lindsay Hunter, in our respective basements. Editing by Lindsay Hunter. Music by Max Loop. Yeah, yeah.